One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Colloquium. In this episode, I sit down with Biff Pusey and DJ Van Karen to discuss the best practices for investing in alternatives as a boutique wealth management firm or family office. Join us as we discuss how to navigate the current COVID crisis, what the biggest opportunities and threats are, how investment philosophies will change going forward, and how they are actively allocating and deploying capital in this environment. So thank you all for joining us. This is a, a webinar series that we've been doing for the past few months here at Excelsior Capital. As brief background on myself, I am the founder of the real estate firm here based in Nashville. And we focus on buying multi-tenant office properties in growing secondary markets. And we really try to achieve three things, giving access to individuals and families, um, institutional assets at accessible entry points or investment points, we focus on yield. We're trying to solve for a 7 to 10% cash-on-cash cash yield sent out quarterly. And we really focus on the tax benefits of direct real estate ownership, which a lot of sponsors and GPs do not if they have non-taxable investors. The majority of my network are individuals, families, and independent RIAs. And as part of this series, we're trying to help educate folks and provide other resources for them as they look at investing into alternatives, real estate, etc. With that, I also want to thank all of our essential workers and frontline healthcare workers for everything they're doing. As I've said before, if the worst thing that happens here is I die of boredom, we will be very fortunate. So with that, I will pass it off to Biff, who I've known for a long time, old friend. I'm excited to have him on the show. And then DJ, who I've known for a long time, but, but not very, very well. So I'm excited to learn more about his background and the firm. Biff, you look like you're in a fun place. Where are you right now? Ringing in from Litchfield, South Carolina. Nothing like talking real estate when you're in the sun and enjoying the the outdoors, which is okay under sort of pandemic conditions. And looking around at real estate <laughs> because that's what we do. We want to live at the beach. Uh, not yet, though. At any rate, my name is Biff Pusey, and I am I have a partner, Jeff Musat. He and I have a boutique family wealth advisory practice. We work with a few families that we know well and who know us well in all areas of financial and life planning and investment management. And as part of the, we, we do that from our 
well, we used to have a home office in Richmond. Now we're office sort of wherever we are, which is helpful. We've always been technologically configured to work from and work from anywhere and at any time. So the pandemic fortunately has not caught us short in terms of serving our clientele. It certainly has made the markets interesting, but we are focused on creating portfolios for our family clients that not only generate the cash that they need to live on, but also generate the returns uh, in the sort of the interim time in public markets and longer term uh, through private markets that enhance their portfolio and uh, hopefully enhance their family's lives. And it's a privilege to work with them and I think there are a number of them on online today and they probably haven't seen me in a while since many of them don't do Zoom. So welcome. Thanks, but DJ, could you give a little bit of background on yourself and then what your current firm focuses and, and platform? Sure. So DJ Van Charen, I um I've been in the family office space for about six years now and, and uh that's where I met both Brian and, and Biff and known Biff for quite some time. I've worked for a number of single family offices with a strict focus on real estate, including the uh, uh, Heyman family. Uh, for those that know Giorgio Perfume, Giorgio Beverly Hills was doing quite a bit of work with uh, third gen and the Montfort. They own the Colorado Rockies. Uh, prior to that, it worked on the institutional side with like Blackstone and Apollo and Carlisle. And now under Evergreen Property Partners, we're, we're, we've got a platform that we're just launching because of the number of families and uh, so, for example, we've got an allocation we're working on with the Marriott family, who's only doing a distressed fund for friends and families. We're able to have an allocation for that. So we're going to invite some just other families that want to join us for that. On the educational side, similar to what Brian's been doing, they have family office real estate. And so we've got a number of things. We we um, we too do podcasts. So we'll have to get you on there, Brian. And then um, we have a quarterly magazine, Family Office Real Estate Magazine a Consortium that we just started. Then we're about to house the Family Office Real Estate Institute at the University of Denver, which will be a focus strictly for family offices on real estate in relation to their families and planning and very happy to, to be here and, and uh, contribute and help uh, in any fashion. Great. Well, just to set the guidelines here for all the attendees, we just went around and did the introductions. We're going to go into hopefully a pretty fun and free-flowing conversation discussion. If there are specific questions or areas that you want any of us to touch on, you can use the Q&A button on the bottom and I'll make sure that we, we try to address those. And we will leave time at the end if folks want to ask specific questions, but feel free to interject midstream. Let's talk about something that I found very interesting after working the conference circuit, and that's where I met Biff originally probably 10 years ago. We're not talking about that. Makes me feel old. Um, how do you think about deal flow? How do you think about inbound, outbound marketing. And, and I think more importantly or more useful for some of our audience because oftentimes time is is the is the resource that we have the, the least amount of. Where have you found your time not well spent and where have you found it to be more efficient ROI in terms of the copies, the, the networking, the conferences, et cetera? I'm always curious to hear about how you manage deal flow and meet sponsors and GPs. Interesting question. So back when I was with a much larger multifamily office, I spent a lot of time on the conference circuit, but that was really more of an outbound marketing effort. So it was really more of us talking from the podium about what we did as a multifamily office working for 
several hundred million dollar families up to several billion dollar families. And that was a marketing, I'm going out there to meet families kind of focus. Now that I'm back on the smaller working for restricted number of families doing specific allocations, I do the conferences because I like to teach. Uh, it's fun to go and share what we've learned with other people. And I feel like you know, giving it away as part of what we do as uh, responsible professionals. But also, it does allow me to sort of hear what other people are talking about. So I can hear from experts uh, who are either on the deal side or are sponsoring funds or like DJ or also have an educational hat that they wear. And for me, it's a sort of a chance to pick up on, and particularly for the real estate perspective, what's going on nationwide to hear who's doing what and where, what are the different asset classes, what are the challenges. Spent a lot of time thinking about risk. What's going to come back and bite us in the butt? We don't want that to happen for our families. Impairment of capital is worse than getting a low return. So we try to avoid losses. The hard part, though, is as an allocator is I go to these conferences and I feel like I'm a shark bait. They're all just sort of glomming on me as, as an allocator. And so I spend a lot of time hiding. So it's hard to sort through who are the real ones and who are not. And so then I come back to the network that I've built over time with other families. I've been doing this for 20 years now. People like you, Brian, and DJ, people that you and Brian, you and I have met through the family office circuit specifically, that I've met with through DJ, through sort of the real estate or maybe the impact investing conferences that we go to, and you narrow that down. I might be approached by a sponsor or by a family to do something, and I will immediately turn to you two or some other people and say, hey, do you know this family? Do you know this sponsor? <laughs> Have you had a good experience with them, investing with them? What do you know about them? And I use that network to validate sponsors or families before you even consider co-investing with them because it's that's the way to sort of cut down on the time. I don't have time to go read all the documents. I certainly don't have time to go to those big platforms. I just can't. We're too small. We don't have that much money to allocate. And I just want to be, Jeff and I just want to be with a few good sponsors, a few good families that we can work with to know very well. Just like we know our clients, we want to know our investment managers really well. DJ, how about your thoughts on that subject? Well, the biggest two areas for families are due diligence and deal flow, which is similar to what Biff was just talking about. The average family usually has between three to five operators, sponsors that they work with. And today, about 70, close to 80% now, the families want to go direct, right? Instead of going through funds. Uh, and, and that's for the transparency and et cetera. So, you know, the first thing that a lot of times, two families will go in and they'll just look at the deals and they'll say, is this a good deal or a bad deal? And, and that's where I'm always like, first, it's got to be on the sponsor. It's got to be on on who can they implement, right? Because you could have a great deal, but if it can't be implemented, it doesn't really matter, right? And then also, you could also run into a time like now, right, where where this was a black swan or you hit a recession. You want somebody that's going to be able to be there, be in the trenches, make sure that you can trust them to get through what they need to do. A way to go about that is, like Biff said, is to to talk to other people that's invested, who you're investing in with, what you like, and and I think, Brian, that's why it's so important that people that you currently have in, as investors, you know, how fortunate they are that they found you guys and that aspects like this is very, very important because once you have what typically happens is that once a, a family is comfortable, they might start with a small allocation. Later, it'll come a larger allocation, but it's good for everybody involved, right? Because then they know okay, let's look at a deal. Well, if you approve the deal, it's probably a good deal. I trust you. I feel good. I've seen your success. 
And it's a matter of getting to that point, right? To be able to, to feel comfortable with what you're doing. And so, like I said, I think investors are very fortunate to, to have you to be able to rely on So there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things I, I do want to touch on is my wife's family has a single family office here in Nashville. And one of the really interesting things has been I had a, a little exposure to the institutional LP world and, and didn't like it. It wasn't my cup of tea. I love working with individuals and families. And one of the reasons is during this time, we're office guys. We've been very fortunate. We haven't had any issues with our tenants, knock on wood. We've been able to do distributions, et cetera. But a lot of my investors obviously are in hotel deals or retail deals or multifamily and just trying to be a resource for them and, and help guide them through this whole time. I think it strengthens that relationship. And I love being able to, you know, I'm not after all their AUM. That's the last thing I want. So just trying to help put them in touch with the right people like that for DJ who can, who can help work through this whole process has been, you know, hopefully one of the positive takeaways. I do want to touch on one thing that you all both mentioned. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this, this shift seemingly from a lot of families working in being LPs and funds or even fund of funds, and then pivoting towards what has been this just dramatic shift towards a focus on direct co-investment. And specifically, DJ, it seems like there's this intersection of the increasing cost of running a single family office. And a lot of it has to do with their inability to turn a, a diligence and underwriting fast enough for a sponsor to be able to work with them. Where have you all seen that, those, all those things play out in terms of how you're working with clients today? There's a couple of things. I mean, usually the number that for people to have a professional on staff is $250 million or more from an AUM perspective, right? Where they say it makes it's cost effective in order for that to happen. There are three different buckets, I would say, that you've got from a family perspective. You've got the Michael Dell of the world, the Ross Perot's, where they're going to have actually an infrastructure in place similar to that of an institution, right? So they're going to have quite a number of professionals that are quite seasoned, and they're usually doing everything themselves. And that would also fall under a family that created their wealth in real estate. So they've got the, that infrastructure in place. The second area is where you've got families that have somewhat of an infrastructure in place where they can do the, the, the due diligence and everything else. And then you've got the smaller families that could be just the family members and they don't necessarily have the expertise. We were talking before that, you know, a lot of people, they know their industry very, very, very well, but they don't understand necessarily real estate, hedge funds, venture capital, private equity. And then you've got subsectors within there, whether it's healthcare or different property types. And so those smaller families typically will go toward a fund, right? Because it's much easier to have that diversification that they're looking for. On the property specific, you know, the reason why that has been moving over time is because families wanting to have more exposure to understanding what those fees are. And so it can be more transparent. And when we say direct to, and this was brought up to me the other day, direct means investing directly into a deal, let's say through you, Brian. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're investing and buying the property themselves, right? It's more of directly into that allocation of that specific property of what they're doing, which then goes back to the understanding and the comfortability with the sponsor. So, you know, I, I think a friend of ours, and I, I don't know if you know him, Brian, Biff, I know you do, Ron Diamond, he said something to me a couple of years back 
uh, we were having dinner in Chicago. And what he said, he goes, you know, I think, and this is on the private equity side, that's where he focuses, is that when we hit another recession, that families are going to start moving back toward funds and realize it wasn't as easy as what they thought it was because of the due diligence factor, right? And that selecting process. And they might have one or two operators that did well, and then the rest are like, what do we do? So that could ultimately move back, but it's really key focused. But I see those different, those three different buckets on how it's allocating. With that being said, still 80% of the families want to go direct. So Jeff and I, Jeff came from Northern Trust. So he's used to working with big sort of institutional sponsored deals, but also large families. And I came from sort of the family office world as well. So with our boutique firm, we take a family office or multifamily office perspective on this, Brian. We use funds and direct deals. We have to enhance our limited time by trusting experts. And that's either the deal sponsor for going into a direct deal, buying into a sort of a, a partnership that's going to own a single property, or finding the expert who's a fund manager who's going to give us a diversified portfolio of properties. The key to both, though, is the expert. <laughs> we want that fund manager, we want that deal sponsor to be the expert. Because Jeff and I, Jeff actually owns properties in Chicago personally. My family came out of the finance and ownership of real estate business. Neither of us want to do that anymore. That's not what we do. We work with families as a fiduciary and we manage, we help them manage their lives and their entire investment portfolio. We're not directly managing real estate. It takes too much time. It's not what we do. It's not what our families come to us to go do. So we find the trusted experts. And in terms of returns, uh, we think generally speaking, we can get a higher return with the individual deals. But there's higher risk with individual deals because if that deal goes sideways, that could be a zero or a loss versus a diversified fund where we have a number of different deals working. And that might lower the average return across the fund, but it also ameliorates the impact of any individual deal going south. So by balancing those two in our clients' real estate portfolios, as well as their private equity portfolios or venture capital portfolios or you know any of their equity portfolios, that allows us to create a portfolio that creates a nice risk-adjusted return with some element of certainty and cash flow that families can build off of and be confident about. So that dovetails really well into an, another section I want to talk about. How do you, and, and this may be slightly more focused on you, but how do you think about asset allocation, risk appetite, coupled with return profile and, and what the family or individual wants? Yeah, so that's that comes to knowing the family and really a main driver for us keeping our firm a boutique or concierge-style practice. We just don't want a lot of families to work with because we can't know what they need or what they expect or what their life events might call for. So understanding it's not just their risk tolerance, meaning how much loss they can absorb before they freak out or want to go you know, get all their cash back or anything. It's also what is their expectation for life? What do they need now to live off of? What is sort of in the middle term, you know, call it three to five years? What's going on? What do they have big projects? Are they traveling? Do they have kids going to college? Is there an inheritance event? Some of those kind of things. But also with families, and DJ will echo this, as will you, Brian, it's the longer term. We're fiduciaries not only for the current generation, but for the coming generations. And so we have to build a portfolio for families that work in three timeframes, the short term, cash, lifestyle, safety. The middle term, staying ahead of inflation, keeping up with the markets, and then long term, building portfolio value so that the families have something to pass along or to give away. 
depending on what their their family uh, mode is. All of those things factor into constructing a portfolio of cash or absolute return or lower risk type adventures. Some of those are private. Some of those are public. That can include, for us, core real estate. So a highly occupied, low capital expense type building that's located in a great secondary city where everybody's going to, like where, where both of you are, Nashville and Denver, that can fit in sort of that absolute return type portfolio. It's nice cash flow. We have low risk. Medium term would be more sort of public equities. And then the long term could be private equity, venture capital, and those are kind of things that pay off over seven to 10 to 14 years. And by creating all of those together, public, private, short-term, medium-term, long-term, low-risk to high-risk, we can create a portfolio that suits our clients' expectations for lifestyle and for portfolio growth and for uh, charitable and next-generation intentions, and hopefully without too much volatility. That's the magic. If I could do that every time, I'd be, well, the biggest guy in the world, but I don't want to be. DJ, how do you think about when you're consulting with a family or, or working with a group how do you typically talk about asset allocation? Like Biff says, I mean, now you start getting into the advisory role, which I definitely understand that in the 90s, I was a, an advisor. Of course, we just focus on the real estate component and real estates continue to be a larger and larger portion of the portfolio. On um, the most recent family office real estate study that we've done, and this is the second year, you know, the allocation is pushing north of 20 now, 20% within real estate. It's really become an asset class of its own. Still goes back, really. The, the bigger thing we focus on is, is what are they looking to accomplish, similar to what Biff said. And there's really two buckets from that perspective. It's either income or it's growth or a combination of both, right? And the, the, the biggest factor is that 70% of the families lose their wealth by the second gen, 90% lose their, their wealth by the third generation. And I really see real estate as being providing that ability to not happen, right? Because you can hold real estate for a long time. You've got a tremendous number of benefits, right? Because if you're holding and you're cash flowing, one, you're taking care of that. You've got appreciation that should be happening to some extent, right? More in major cities or, or growing cities than others. You got depreciation, you got cost segregation. I mean, the real numbers that you're getting on that real estate is significantly different than what it looks like on the surface, right? And that's a, a conversation actually we've had internally to sort of change and go against the market where when you, when you take into consideration the interest rate deductions and the amortization and everything else, those real returns are much, much, much greater. You've got the income component and then you also have the growth. Now, families, it's sort of an oxymoron, but the majority want opportunistic and value add, right? But they also want to hold for 10 plus years. Well, <laughs> Those are two different areas, right? The value-add opportunistics are usually three to five-year transactions. The others is much longer. So the only way you can really do that is that you you build something, you get a value-add, you refinance out, you get your money back, and you just hold on to it. But really depends, like Biff said, what they're looking to accomplish. Real estate's a hard asset. It's not going anywhere. And so if you make a good decision and location, you hold that thing for the long term, you can get your money back and then some, especially if you refinance out, let the thing go, refinance out, let it go, because it's all tax-free money when you're pulling it out. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And one of the reasons that I don't have institutional LPs in any of my deals is as a sponsor and a GP, if you have CalPERS 
as an LP, you're going to make decisions regardless of tax implications. And you're going to be able to throw out a bunch of big gross IRR numbers. But after taxes and fees, if you're a taxable investor, it's huge differential there. And oftentimes, I think that's not fully appreciated by even fairly astute investors. And so my controller will kill me for saying this, but you know, oftentimes we can show a loss on a K-1 yeah. while still giving them a decent yeah. coupon. And that's really powerful to offset gains elsewhere for a taxable investor. And that's, that's why I love Biff's model, A, just because he's been in this business a long time, not to age you, but you've seen multiple cycles and, and you know alternatives and, and et cetera. But also coupling the tax CPA uh, component I think is is huge and doesn't get talked enough by when I see deals or a family brings me an opportunity, you know, there's no conversation about the tax implications. Yeah. It really worries me because, you know, that's going to have a huge impact. So Biff, do you want to talk a little bit more about structure and how you work with, you know, tax advisors and, and I'm not asking for anyone to give tax advice, but I really like that model. And so I'm curious what your experience has been in that world. Well, we joined, my family joined Kimball Advisory because Kimball CPA had, has been our longtime tax strategy firm. And I happened to be in meeting with them on changes in corporate taxation. And my former colleague, Jeff, had started Kimball Advisory. And, hey, Jeff, what are you doing? And we decided, let's go do it together because we like doing this model where we have the advisory component, that's what he and I do on the sort of the life and financial planning, including tax strategy. But we have our CPA brethren sitting right next to us, or at least virtually sitting next to us on Zoom these days. And we can go to them with no sort of barrier to find out, hey, does this make sense? If it's a qualified opportunity zone opportunity, for example, or a 1031, or some other estate component where we're trying to create value for it through trusts or other sort of next generation descent type containers. So Jeff and I can't know everything. Having the experts there sitting next to us is really important, but not all of our families are Kimball CPA clients. So they have their own CPA. So it's important that we know them, that we communicate with them, that we run deals by them. In fact, a certain tax advisor for a client, when I ran a deal buyer said, gosh, nobody's ever called me about this before. And I was, well, that's we hope to be different. We, we hope to take into all those things into consideration. We don't let, as we say, the tax tail wag the dog because taxes are not everything, although more likely than not, they're going to go up in our future. We've been saying that for a while. We will invest in tax inefficient deals because we like what they do for a portfolio from a risk mitigation perspective or maybe just a gross return perspective. But taxes are clearly a huge consideration for taxable family offices. And that model, I think you have to have the tax component really solved to really do a good job as a fiduciary for your clients. And DJ, do you have thoughts on that subject? From a structure or working with professionals? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on, on the what professionals you're working with. Obviously, on the accounting side, they're look more on the tax component. I, I think it's important that, and I don't think, some accountants are very, very tax savvy with the various components and really understand others sort of, right? So I think that makes a big, big difference. I mean, I can personally tell you that I've had accountants before that when you take something to another accountant, all of a sudden they're finding all of this money that 
you weren't being found before, right? So I think that varies on the professional. And, and then the same thing on the legal side. There's quite a bit of, that can be done to really make considerable amounts of difference. You know, our, our friend uh, Tom Handler, who's with Handler there out of Chicago, he works with a tremendous amount of very wealthy families. And I mean, just by a structure perspective, he saved hundreds of millions before. And so I think it's something that should not be overlooked whatsoever. In fact, a big, big thing with families, 80% of the families have not done or maybe done once a 1031 exchange. And, and to defer taxes is, and getting that compounding effects is absolutely tremendous. And it's, I think a lot of it comes back to just having an understanding. And I sent out an email one time just to share on, on cost segregation. I can't tell you how many calls I got from people saying, hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so or what does this mean, et cetera. So I think having educational platforms like this, Brian, like that you're doing is just tremendous because unless you're in it every day, there's definitely could be something that you're missing out on. You know, it's the same thing of working with somebody like Biff is that there could be components that by having that, that professional, somebody with an understanding, somebody that comes from an actual family themselves there could be one thing that that he notices that makes a huge difference in portfolio construction or tax or planning or whatever. And so I think you just need to educate yourself your best and uh, and, and surround yourself with great, great people. Yeah, I, I've made a lot of mistakes. One of the bigger ones in my business was not having an internal controller who was tax savvy. And yeah. so two years ago, I brought on you know, a CPA with a public accounting tax background internally. He obviously doesn't give tax advice to our clients, but he interacts daily with our external third-party tax advisors. And it's made a huge difference. DJ, to your point, older sponsors who don't take into account accelerated depreciation under the new Trump Tax Act, cost segregation analysis, and even structuring the quarterly dividends as a return of capital those are fairly straightforward, simple things, but huge impact when it comes to the returns to taxable investor. And so those are a huge part of where we focus. I want to talk a little bit about structure. One of the things that I've found not worrying, but there's clearly this movement towards the cost of running a single family office is going up exponentially. When I got into the business, it was $100 million. Ronald Diamond, who I saw pre-COVID at a conference said, if you really want to do it right, it's 500 million. DJ said it was 250, but it's clearly going up dramatically. And then there's this rise of the independent RIA, right? The, the big banks and the wirehouses are losing AUM, they're losing wealth management firms. People are going to these independent RIAs. And what I've seen, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is, because they can't really differentiate themselves on price any longer, because the cost of, of trading has really been commoditized. It's all about access to alternatives as a way to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. And there's such a broad spectrum of sophistication of how these groups are going about talking about private equity and then access to alternatives. It's frankly pretty dramatic, the differentiation there. So Biff, do you want to touch on kind of what those trends you've seen throughout your career and, and where you think we're going to go in the next kind of two, three years, and then how you're addressing that? Yeah. So I've seen the same or heard the same numbers you have 
family office at $100 million, going to 250, maybe 500 if Ronald's talking about sort of a fully integrated team doing everything. I think the rise of the independent RIA is coming out of the dissatisfaction with the broker-dealer model, looking for the true fiduciary where you're serving your client's best interests. Plus, you have a lot of more independence. Broker-dealer rules really prevent you from doing a lot in the alternatives world. It's very hard to get an alternative product set up on a broker-dealer platform. There's, there are firms that do that, and they do it a good job of it. But the fees, the cost to get that registered and then distributed to your clients can sometimes make the returns just not worth it, the risk. And one of the things that we on the independent RIA side working with families do is avoid all of those. We don't want that fee complication. We don't need those aggregator or consolidator platforms. We can work with our sponsors directly, most of whom will look at us and say, okay, you're not, each of your clients are coming in for a million dollars, but together you guys may have a million or two million coming in you, Kimball Advisory, you guys manage the client relationships. We'll take the money and consider it part of the household. You guys are sort of one investor. And therefore, we are able to offer our clients the proper sizing on each of these deals and then manage that for them with the sponsor who is the expert in the area without doing additional fee layering or going through a consolidator. Fees are always being compressed. Everybody's looking for a good deal. I would caution people not to go to the lowest fee person because sometimes they're not getting paid enough to do a good job. And so particularly for small funds that we like to invest in, the entrepreneurial funds, either on the real estate side or particularly venture capital, I don't worry about paying a high management fee to those groups because I want them to be fully compensated to go and have the right systems and have the right wallet to go and manage their properties well and find the deals and do a good job. I don't want them struggling to pay their bills. That's different than one of the large, like Blackstone or somebody. I'm not going to pay them 2.5% management fee. They don't need that. That's just making a lot of money on my money. So right, fees are important, but it's the after-fee performance, taking into account the risk and the opportunity, which really matters. You know, it's interesting because, as I said, I started on the other side of the table, and, and there's really been an evolution in the growth in that RIA sector, Right. A lot of broker-dealers, a lot of people are getting away from broker-dealers. I used to have my licenses, and I, I don't want nothing to do with FINRA and SEC. It's, it's really terrible. And it's, it, you know, the one thing that I always say, too, is that, you know, the SEC is looking and FINRA at these people that are doing things that aren't necessarily in the best interest of the clients. Well, what I want to say to them is, let's think about this. You're, you're hiring somebody to uh, make investment decisions in a commission basis. So it just doesn't match, right? There's not an alignment of interest because I'm sorry, but if I got to feed my family, I'll take a 7% commission before I'll take a, a 2% commission, right? And, and that's what happens in, in the in the environment. So the REA area is, is really something that's continuing to grow. And I, I do think like Biff said, is that you have more of an alignment of interest for sure. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes back to the relationships, right? Do I feel comfortable? Do I feel that they're going to be in my best interest to do what they need to do? And you know, I just think that the that RAA area is just continuing to evolve and continuing to get bigger and bigger. And I do think it's for the best. We've also yeah. seen, Brian and DJ, the rise of the multifamily offices, right? Families who may be under that 500 or $250 million amount, and they're banding together to create their own advisory practice to manage the needs of their 
one, two, three, four families. Sometimes they institutionalize and become a multifamily office serving clients that are much smaller or other families. Sometimes they just stay together for the time that it takes to put together. But costs are a big deal. Trying to do everything for everybody is difficult at best. I think we all know that from life experience. I do want to touch on something really quick. Can you guys hear me okay? Here's okay? Okay. There's, I think what's happening in the industry that people need to understand is that you're getting a lot of RAAs that are saying that they're multifamily offices, but they're, they're really not. I mean, the true definition of a multifamily office is, is what I would consider that you've got the hard side and the soft side, you know, it's sort of like hard cost and soft cost. I view the, the hard side of that business is the investment side, right? The allocations, the portfolio planning, et cetera. Soft side is when you're getting into, okay, how do we plan so that when the transition happens from the patriarch to the rest of the families, that things are, you know, there's a plan in place, right? It also has to do with what are the, so what I'm looking for here, and that's everything from tax issues to legal issues to sometimes having a psychiatrist, you know, that you send them off to because of all the various family members, right? And so I think that that's a, a big part. And, and when people are looking for those various services, if somebody is says they're a multifamily office, what are they really able to help you and support you on? Because the family issues and dynamics alone can be significant, and that can really have an impact on ultimate returns as well, right? And and so I, I think that needs to be taken in consideration because once again, at the end of the day, 90% lose their wealth by the third gen. So you've got to have that overall holistic picture. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. After being in this, I didn't come from this world. I'm a, what's called a non-lineal or a outlaw as Biff would probably call me, but my wife is the oldest member of G2. But I've spent the last 10 years talking to a lot of families, dinner, drinks, conferences, and, and we all kind of live in the same world. And, you know, if you look at inflation plus your spend rate plus the exponential growth of your family, it's hard. It's a lot of work to maintain your quality of life. And, you know, oftentimes I see or we'll talk to an older G, G1 wealth creator and he'll say, or she will say, I, I kind of wish we just held on to our operating company because after taxes and fees and all the other things I mentioned, we're now going to have to go way out on the limb on risk and leverage to maintain what we had before. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, being a fiduciary like like Biff was talking about, and, and we actually just went through this process ourselves of trying to transition to a multifamily office as our family has grown and my father-in-law is getting older, it's really convinced me that the fiduciary model where somebody that have internal tax and legal and looking at the entire picture across all the individual family households, I think is the right model for a lot of folks. And DJ, I would echo your sentiment that I think there's a lot of RIAs out there masquerading as multifamily offices. That is purely a marketing ploy. And I worry about some of those those clients long term. Well, the, the other thing, too, is that I personally, and Biff, you can tell me if you, if you think differently, but there's a significant difference between first gen and let's say third gen, right? A lot of the focus, the first gen is usually like, what's my returns? What's my returns, right? So if they're looking at an impact investment 
and they can get a, a 14% or they can have an investment, they're getting a 16%, that first, that patriarch's going to go with the 16. If you're talking to a younger gen, right, a millennial, for example, they're going to be like, well, geez, I'll take the 14 because I'm doing good in the world, right? So there's different mental thoughts about the type of investing that's being done or that would want to be done at a younger generation, right? And Beth, maybe you're seeing differently, but there's, you know, there's two different views of the world. And I think that the millennials are, are definitely, you know, more about saving, saving the world rather than that ultimate profit dollar that has to do with allocation issues and everything else. And, and once again, going back to the beginning is that the most important thing, I think that families that have significant wealth really need to have in place is a governance. How are things going to handle? What's that? What's the plan look like? Yeah. So Brian and I are members of the same family office organization where I did my initial sort of training 20 years ago. And I thought that the hard side of the family office, the investment side was where I was going to be focused my time. I learned quickly that the soft side is the hard side. And that's what we spent a decade figuring out is getting our governance realigned, getting it so that family members who are treated differentially in sort of call it old school estate plans were now equalized and everybody had sort of the same say. One of the things I learned from a interesting lawyer in Chicago area, uh, no, St. Louis, Charlie Lowen, Lowen helped wrote an article on freedom from wealth. Sometimes people don't want to be bound together in these family vehicles. They, they, they need to go be who they are and family wealth can actually feel entrapping to them. And so giving them the opportunity to leave, Sometimes, or most of the times in my experience, they'll stay if they have the opportunity to leave and they can make a more rational decision if they don't feel trapped. And then as far as family dynamics go, not only is there the sort of the first, second, third gen, the old school versus millennial, but in fact, women are controlling most of the money now through they're outliving their husbands. And so they're actually going to be the deciders of where the family wealth is going to go for the next 10, 15, 20 years before the next generations inherit. And women think differently about money than men do, generally speaking. Now, generalizations are generalizations. They Averages can kill you when you drop into the deep part of the ocean and drown. But some women have a more impact focus and some have a more return focus. Some are hard driving, some are more soft. There are a variety of ways that they look at money that's different than sort of the the older male generation might, for example. So understanding and having a sensitivity to that and working well with both male clients, female clients, older clients, younger clients, it's it's not easy. It takes a lot of work and a sensitivity and an empathy and a compassion. And not every office is the right office for a family. Sometimes their best option is to open their own or form their own multifamily office. Sometimes they say, you know what? This is not what we're good at. We don't want to do this. I mm-hmm. want to go and do my thing. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a philanthropist. I want to get out of all this kind of stuff and be a instructor. I mean, they just want to go do different things. And that's where finding a trusted advisor in a multifamily office context or another family that they can work with can be the right decision. Well, I, I just want to mention a couple of things too, is in addition to what you're saying, Beth, because ironically, we're talking about here real estate and it's all about building that foundation, right? Just like a property. If you don't build the right property, the, the building is going to fall down. The other thing too that I think people have to take into consideration is a lot of times people are like, well, we'll just have a family member take care of the finances, right? However, now that's whole different dynamics 
There's emotion involved. There are expectations involved. And in fact, you talk about making sure people are paid. I just posted an article on LinkedIn the other day that talked about how you know, I hear all the time where families don't want to pay that family member industry compensation, right? Now, if they're not doing a good job, that's one thing. But if they're doing the same amount of the same job and everything else, they should be. But that emotional component can play a huge part. And Biff, I'm sure you know this because of your own family, right? That there are certain expectations, aspects that play into that. Brian has certainly seen that with his wife's family, I know. <laughs> I, it's a blessing and a curse to be a family member working in mm. your family office. For the most part, it's been a blessing in my case because I got a chance to work very closely with my father and his sisters and their spouses. To reconnect really closely with my cousins has been a real privilege. But it's taken a lot of hard work and getting other family members involved, both from a governance perspective to make sure what I'm doing is the right thing or the best thing. It could be that I'm not the right guy. Fire me. Hire somebody else. Yeah. I've always, my family adopted early on the idea that we want to be part of a professional firm so that we can have sort of those governance aspects of professionalism outside just our family members. But that was the right choice for us. It takes a lot of work to figure that out for what is the right choice for a specific family. Yeah, I think um, the, the best analogy I've heard is it's like being the general manager of a country club. You only get calls when things go wrong. <laughs> no one ever calls you up and says, golf course looks great. Food is great. Bar is well stocked. Thank you so much for everything. It's, hey, the eighth green is a mess. The food is bad. Where's my distribution? <laughs> yeah, right. It's called um, Thanksgiving Day risk, right? You go sit down at Thanksgiving table. So, we did okay this year, but tell us about this deal that went south. Oh gosh. Okay, here we go. There's some Brian, there's a couple questions that I know came up that you know I'd like to address if that's okay. Yeah, we're we've been blown and going here. It's been a fun conversation, but we are running up until the hour and I want to be mindful of people's time. So let's start this one. Biff, this is to you talking about the the conference world and now that you're an allocator, you're getting a lot of buy side folks and, and you and I both know that there are wolves and sheep's clothing at a lot of these events. How are you managing new relationships and maybe talk a little bit about your diligence process with new sponsors or deals that come across your desk? Yeah, I'm a sort of a nice Southern boy. So I try to respond to most emails. I'm just not very good at ignoring people. I guess the recommendation would be if it's a new relationship to me or to Jeff at Kimball, is to come through with a, hey, you and I know X, Y, and Z. It's some, sometimes it's those are LinkedIn connections. You and I know the same people. I tend to pay more attention to those, particularly people that I admire or that I've done deals with, other families that I trust or know. Sometimes it's the opportunity. Uh, it, it's, I don't think there's any easy answer. Sometimes I'm just too busy. Right now I'm on vacation. I'm really not taking any emails if I can avoid it. I'd rather be spending time with my grandson. But I think for... Um, sponsors trying to get in front of family offices or advisory firms, I think patience and being educative, not salesy, and being engaging and just call it being a nice person, somebody that you want to interact with. I want to invest with people I don't have a coffee with or a beer with when I go visit them. I don't have time to go invest with, I don't care if they're the best hedge fund manager in the world. They're a jerk. No, thanks. Life's too short to work with them. I'm going to address that too, because I, I can, you know, the question here was thoughtful way sponsors and managers can approach families and stuff like that. I look at it as a three, a three-legged stool. 
if you go to an event, you have to understand that it, it is all about relationship, like Vic said. And there are families that could take three months, could take three years, could take 10 years, right, until they'll invest. So you have to take a long-term perspective. I think one of the best things to do is, let's say, you know, I walked up to Biff, I got to know him, or I saw him, and I said, hey, Biff, how are you doing, you know? And maybe I'll ask a question of, you know, you have a family office. Yeah. You know, is it your personal family? Yeah. Where was the wealth created? I love that question because it's, I was always curious, right, to find out. But you're also going to find out a little bit more about, you know, if they're passionate, if they're not passionate about it, what type of industry and everything else. Don't even talk about your deal. They're they're gonna they're gonna ask you. So what do you do? Ah, uh, you know we're working on some office uh, properties and stuff like that. You know, and then sort of go back into them and talk about them and say, hey, I'd love to keep in touch. Try to exchange business cards, and then a week or two later, hey, it was nice meeting you. Anything I can ever do, please let me know. Right? Maybe three or four weeks later, you say, hey, I was talking about our conversation or from our conversation, here's something you might want to take a look at. Maybe it's an article or maybe it's something you ran across. I would say until you got to the third or fourth time, let's say that you give Biff a call. Hey, how are you doing, DJ? I'm doing good. You know, how's your family? All this other stuff. A simple question like, hey, we're working on a couple deals. Would you mind if I ever, do you ever want to take a look at them? If it's something that looks pretty good, my guess that 90% of the time, Biff's going to say, yeah, send it over. I'll take a look at it. I just think because it's not, you, you're just like, hey, you're asking, right? You're saying, hey, if we, we're we working on some stuff, do you want to look at what we're doing? He's going to say yes or no. And by that time, he's probably going to be more apt to say, yeah, let me take a look because you haven't been hounding them. You haven't been selling them, right? I was at an event in Napa and, and you know, um, our good friend there out of Florida, Biff, he literally was like, DJ, I got to go. He's like, they are following me around the event. I can't handle it. I'm trying to eat my dinner. And, and so I think it's more of, you know, once again, who do you know? Do I like them? Do I trust them? And part of that is, you know, when you're hounded, I got a deal. I got a deal. Well, the bottom line is back to what we said, Brian, about education. If I don't understand the various types of office and you're bringing some, or let's say it's workforce housing, for multi, I don't know what workforce housing is. I'm not going to invest because I don't even understand. I'm great. I'm getting a 30% return, but I don't know what workforce housing is. I just, and, and it's don't assume that people know. Yeah, I would echo all of that. I know from my perspective, we, you know, have a couple offerings a year. Obviously this year is going to be a little bit different, I think, but I'm now in a position where I have a strict no jerk rule on investors and, and we've been fortunate, you know, we do smaller deals. So we've been oversubscribed most of the time, but life's just too short. I mean, there's families that I'm sure would write me a big check, but, and investments are what they are, right? I mean, they do well, they do poorly. We try our best. I'm certainly not trying to do bad deals, but you know, you're not allowed to, call me once a week and yell at me. And, and there are some folks out there that invest purely to, you know, just have managers to tee off on. And I have zero interest in that. I, I'm like Biff. One of the reasons I love working with individuals, individuals and families is because when I travel, I can go have dinner with them or have a beer with them or talk to a next gen member who wants to get into the real estate business or my sister-in-law is doing a lot of impact investing. And, and so I can connect her with other folks and just a really nice way to do business. And I don't have to deal with the a-holes. 
So I've got another question here that I would love to hear your thoughts on. So obviously we're in a pervasive low interest rate environment. We've kind of see that playing out. Where are you finding yield right now? And how are you, or are you thinking at all about stepping into the REIT world? I know valuations have just been hammered. I think they've come back a little bit, but how do you think about REITs versus funds or individual co-investments and, and solving for that yield equation, which I know a lot of famous individuals are focused on cash flow right now. I want to take that because here's the thing is that you have with REITs, public REITs, is that you've got a hard asset and liquidity environment. They don't match, right? Right. If I said, I want all my money, sell that property. I gave you 5 million bucks and one property. I want it tomorrow. You're going to be like, well, I can't because I got to put it on the market. I got to get approvals. It's going to take 60, 90, 120 days where REITs are totally opposite. If I'm like, I want my money back, Biff, and he's like, fine, we'll sell it. Boom, I got it tomorrow. So the, the thing you have to notice is that, and this happened during the recession too, where actually you know one of the REITs were, were purchased, is because the actual value of those assets within that REIT could considerably be greater than what that share price is on the REIT because of what the public markets are determining. So I think it, it, it's a matter of when you're looking at the REIT market where there's a lot of great opportunity, you really need to dig and understand the underlying assets that are there. And you also need to understand that there is going to be volatility that's happening in that share price. So when you do sell, whereas if you've got an individual, you know, syndication and it's just clipping coupons and it just continues to go, I, I think that yes, you have the risk where it's one asset that we talked about before, but depending on the property type, you know, it's probably a little bit more relevant to know what you're getting. But, you know, REITs is a great place. Uh, not a lot of families put money in REITs more on the uh, foundation side than it is the personal portfolio. And that goes back to the management and everything else. But the other thing that you can do is, you know, there's an ETF. I think it's your fidelity for the REITs, which are just is accumulation of everything. And, and that's, you know, that's also a very easy place to go. It comes back to, to what Bip said at the beginning, where liquidity premium, which is one of the questions in terms of real estate yield, that's your personal objective. How acts, how quickly do you need access to those funds? Because Brian can't sell a property in 30 days. Brian, I think in brief, from a allocator's perspective, particularly from an um, advisory perspective, we have clients who really can't afford to invest in private real estate. They don't have the time frame or the liquidity. So REITs are really the only way we can give them any sort of semblance of real estate allocation in their portfolio. So we do use REITs in that regard. For larger families, we'll use REITs as a holding place to get to have liquidity with some real estate allocation until our private real estate calls down the capital to invest in the private real estate. And then sometimes it's just liquidity. People like to know they can get out. And REITs really look more like equities, public equities, and they look like private real estate. So I don't think of them as the same, but in our models, we have a public real estate, which is REITs, and a private real estate, which is private real estate. And the amount allocated to those two is, depends on the client profile. Well, I want to thank DJ and Biff. We're bumping up against the hour mark here. If anyone who uh, attended this webinar or watches it um, after the fact wants to get in touch with either of them, I'm happy to provide content information. But I want to thank Biff for taking the time, especially on his vacation. I hope you enjoy your time at the beach with your grandson. DJ, 
thank you for the opportunity to connect with us and look forward to staying in touch. And, and thanks to you all for um, attending. So with that, we, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what that is, but we will uh, <laughs> close it down. I hope you all have a great weekend and uh, thanks again. All right, take care. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.